gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. I'm very excited about today's guest. Um, uh, longtime listeners know that I am somewhat obsessed with the baleful and often pernicious role of public sector unions in American life. Um, and so we figured we would um, bring in, uh, if not the Pope of the issue, then at least uh, a, a high-ranking Archbishop of the issue. Um, he's Philip K. Howard. He's a New York Times bestseller. He's the author of six books, uh, at least three of which I have read and gotten a lot out of. Um, in 2002, he formed uh, Common Good, uh, which is a nonpartisan coalition de- dedicated to championing ideas of simplifying government and restoring individual responsibility. His latest book is Not Accountable, Rethinking the Constitutionality of Public Employee Unions, which explores the ways in which government officials have been disempowered by public sector unions. Philip K. Howard, welcome to The Remnant. Nice to be with you, Jonah. So uh, my, my, my single favorite question to ask of authors on a book tour is, what's your book about? <laughs> um, uh, the book uh, looks at the problems caused by public employee unions, teachers unions, police unions, uh, through the lens of constitutional governance. What have they done to how democracy works in our country? And most people have, for years, have known how inefficient they are and what a pain it is to work with them if you're in public office. But uh, no one had really focused on the fact that they largely preempted the power of voters by taking away the authority of the elected executives, such as governors and mayors, to run government. They get they get elected, and then to fix the schools, and then they find they don't have the authority to fix the schools. Why don't you um, uh, give us some sort of concrete examples to, to work with? Um, I mean, I, I can think of some, some I've gotten from you, but it's your book, so. <laughs> Since collective bargaining was authorized, which was only 50 years ago, give or take, uh, the public employee unions have changed the structure of public operating systems so that, for example, there is near zero accountability. Um, there was an 18-year study in Illinois found that an average of two out of 95,000 teachers were dismissed for poor performance over 18 years. That's twice the rate as in California. Uh, in, in, in New York City, the rate is about 0.01%. Uh, a, a teacher... Uh, convicted of selling cocaine when he gets out of jail is ordered to be returned into the classroom under these rules. I mean, so you're talking about just absurd absence of account. And the problem with, with the lack of accountability is not just that, that there's some lousy teachers there. Is it, is it left, uh, is it destroys the basis for mutual trust that's necessary for any functioning organization. When you know that performance doesn't matter, why, why go the extra mile? Why try hard? You know, it's incredibly discouraging. And democracy is nothing but a process of accountability. You elect pe- people, they do a lousy job, you elect somebody else. And for that to work, the people you elect have to have meaningful uh, uh, accountability down the chain of authority. As Madison put it at one point, 
the lowest level, the middle level, and the highest grade must must answer to the president because that's how democracy works. All right, so let me let me try to devil's advocate or steel man uh, the teacher thing a little bit. When I have these conversations with with defenders of of collective bargaining and teachers unions, they'll say, "Look, no one goes into the business of being a teacher for the money." Um, they do it because they love education, they love kids. And so there's a different incentive structure there. Um, I, I, not necessarily my position. <laughs> Although I, I, will, I, I certainly think it's true of some people. Obviously, it's a labor of love for some people. But when you're talking at scale, I don't think that that argument works too well. But what is your response to those kinds of arguments? Well, I mean, let's stipulate that 95% of people who go not into teaching, into all public servants, are doing it because they think it'll be great to serve the public. Wonderful. They still need to work in an organization that has energy and mutual trust and, and honors efficiency. Instead, they work in organizations with no mutual trust because it doesn't matter what you do. And people can sleep all day and keep their jobs, literally. And, and where the work rules are designed, designed for inefficiency, you know, the, the custodian can't paint, can't paint above 10 feet. Because that's the rule. You got to have a different crew. the 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 transit work crew can't cut a branch on an over you know overhanging branch because that's a different work crew. Literally, these rules are designed to cost the public money. So, so people sure people want to do the right thing. I stipulate that. I think people, if anything, there's probably a lot of public workers who are underpaid, but they have to work in organizations where performance matters. And where there's a basis for pride in public service, these contracts are are exercises in cynicism and feather bedding and inefficiency. Let's milk the public. They're 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 incredibly dis disheartening and discouraging to be in an organization like that. Yeah. So the the running it's almost it could almost be on the bingo card for this podcast. I bring it up so often, but like I have become much more sympathetic to private sector unions over the years with some exceptions and with some obvious, uh, you know, caveats. But the, one of the few things that private sector unions appreciate is the fact that without a private sector, you're not going to have the union, but with the permanence of government, that sort of calculation is gone. And also I have to say, if I were a coal miner in 1910 or 1880, um, I'd want to be a member of a union. You know, because, but like I, my, my standard joke is, you know, where was the great Department of Motor Vehicle ceiling collapse of 1967 that justified, you know, all of this collective bargaining and government? And, um, you know, what is the actual, uh, the origin story of how this in fact happened? Yeah, yeah. I go through that and I go through that and not accountable. It's a really interesting story. I also go through the, academic debate over it. And the people who were for it, based on that debate, would clearly agree that the current system is unconstitutional. <laughs> no, the, the, yeah, 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 the way they thought it would work. I want to get to the constitutional part in a little bit, but let's just do the history so people know where we're coming from. Okay, so the origin story for, for uh, business, trade unions, as you suggest, was based in, you know, people being mangled in, in factories and, and such. So, so there was... Uh, there was a big difference there. And even to this day where private trade unions 
have been reduced to 6% of the, of the, of the private workforce. There's still a role for the, for the unions because the possibility of being unionized keeps non-union manufacturers honest. And so, for example, Toyota factories have workers' council to advise them on whether terminating somebody would be unfair. You know, would they have that same protection if they didn't have the possible threat of unions? You know, I don't know. So, so I think there is a role for private unions. The, the origin story of public unions is completely different. Um, FDR was completely against, a big fan of trade unions and the NLRA, National Labor Relations Act, was passed during the New Deal and such. He said, quote, the process of collective bargaining cannot be transferred to the public sector. He thought it was a conflict of interest for people who swear an oath of loyalty to serve the public to negotiate against the public. And, and, and that's the way it was until the rights revolution of the 60s. And the people who ran the public employee associations, which called themselves unions, but they didn't really have power of collective bargaining, uh, unions had naturally, uh, these associations had formed a natural organizing group because the end of the spoil system gave a permanence to employment. So now there was a permanent core of millions of public employees. They're ready for the picking if you could give them power. And uh, and so they had amassed some political clout, which is why JFK gave an order 10988 in 1962, authorizing somewhat limited collective bargaining in the federal government. But the rights revolution of the 60s, you know, you think of all that happened, then, you know, the, all the abuses we woke up to, you know, so the racism... Uh, pollution, unsafe cars, gender discrimination, horrible treatment of disabled children, lies about Vietnam, you know, all of that, you know, authority, authority was in the penalty box. And the, and the public employee unions just kept saying, well, it's just not fair that we can't collect the bargaining and the trade unions can. And nobody thought it through. And they just gave it to them. It was like falling off a log. And the first one was, uh, first big one was New York, 1967. Within two years, 20 states had authorized collective bargaining. So there are material differences, however, I mean, that make it a difference in kind than trade union bargaining, which I'm, um, so uh, the first one is trade unions have to honor the efficiency of the enterprise or the workers lose their jobs. The company will go out of business or it will move out of town. Trade unions negotiations is basically about splitting the pie of profit between capital and labor. It's a very limited amount of, you know, in the early days it was safe work conditions, but regulation preempted all that long before. There's really a very narrow range of what's being negotiated for. In, in the public sector, so the unions, bargaining is all about mandating inefficiency. As I was just saying earlier, it's mandating that you have to have two crews where you only need one. You know, it's mandating a veto. It's not about splitting the profit. It's whatever they can get away with the public. You can have all kinds of pension benefits or spikes in your you know future pensions that 
future generations have to pay for and nobody goes out of business because government can't go out of business. But the worst difference, or the most significant difference, is in trade unions it would it, negotiation, it would be unlawful under the law for management to be to collude with a complicit workers group to come up with some kind of sweetheart um, you know, contract. Public bargaining is nothing but collusion. The unions amass unbelievable amounts of money because government's big. They're allowed seven million people belong to public unions. They spend in, in, in governance races sometimes tens of millions of dollars to get their favorite candidate elected. They literally staff, in the case of New Jersey, they staff the headquarters of the gubernatorial candidate. They have busloads of, of, of union members uh, man the phone banks and do door-to-door canvassing. They get them elected. And then when the collective bargaining agreement comes up, they don't sit on the opposite side of the table. They sit on the same side of the table. It's not a negotiation. It's a payoff. They say it. They say, quote, we elect our own bosses. So you have this collusive arrangement where the public is the victim of inefficient practices, unaffordable pensions, you know, unmanageable government. And, you know, for no reason other than the unions want the power. Yeah, this is one of the points you make in the the book that, hadn't really focused on before which was that with the end of the spoil system the you know the government jobs that politicians would give out uh they all sort of went into sort of they they took a paid leave to be campaign employees you know and volunteers and they would the machines would rally to get their guy reelected and i hadn't really thought about how the public sector unions were a backdoor way of recreating, in effect, the old sort of Tammany style, um, use government employees as your campaign staff. You just have to create a kind of legal fiction that, that they're doing it on behest of a union rather than doing it as, as a patronage thing, which I think is an interesting way of thinking about it. Well, it is a spoil system. I mean, look at it. I mean, the, the problem with the spoil system wasn't that it was political. It was that the people in government were inept. That's what everyone was offended by. There were all these inept people who wouldn't solve your problem. Well, guess what? You know, and that's why we created civil service, to have a, quote, merit system. Now, what do we have? We have people in government who are inept, (laughs) who can't be fired, and we have an anti-merit system. So um, one thing I, I struggle with a little, sort of getting to my point about, you know, if I had been in a, if I had been a coal miner, I would want to be a union. There does seem to be, when you talk about differences of degree and differences of kind, police unions, firefighting unions, um, I'm sure there are a couple others that I can't think of right now that actually involve physical danger, true physical jeopardy. That always struck me as a stronger case for union protections, particularly for with cops where there are these, um, where the political pressures to punish cops is are so great um, uh, that you, I think it's a better argument for organized labor. I also think that it's been abused horribly. Um, but where do you come down on that? Is there? Do you think 
the the institution itself of collective bargaining and 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 public sector unions needs to go or can you pick or can you have triage about it like which is more defensible and which isn't yeah yeah i agree with you about cops and 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 police um I think one of the problems with collective bargaining in the police context is not so much the work rules, although there's some of that, is that, is that there's literally no mechanism for accountability. <laughs> you know, the, the deck really is stacked, and that has the same baleful effects of, of declining mutual trust. So you have this kind of blue wall of silence thing that goes on, you know, where, where cops were trained basically not to interfere with another cop doing something wrong or to, you know, or, or, or to call them out. Well, that's, that's not good for a culture either. But, but I do think that your point about public pressure to, to, to get cops is such that, and I do think there needs to be a new deal, not only for cops, but for all public employees. I mean, we ought to treat them fairly. There ought to be protections to prevent arbitrary dismissal. <laughs> You know, there, there, there are lots of things we should have, but that's not what the collective bargaining agreements are doing. They're, they're about, um, collective bargaining agreements are really about disempowering key supervisory judgments. And so you have the people who are supposedly running an organization, a school, a, a police force, whatever, who don't have the basic management tools to do it. So... What what replaces this system should be something that honors how hard it is to, to be a cop on the beat. By the way, a lot of the liberal legal uh, protections against cops have made it really impossible for them to do their jobs honestly. You know, you've got to show by objective evidence that you had a reasonable basis for this when your instincts tell you that... <laughs> you know, that this guy's up to no good or whatever. So we have to honor the, the, the know-how that's involved in, in the difficult job of being a cop on the beat. Um, but, but police forces, schools, et cetera, they have to be manageable. And we're now at this point where they are more or less literally unmanageable. Yeah, my, my brother, who passed away about a decade ago, but... Uh... He once ran for city council in New York, and I remember him at an event saying, look, there's just really no strong case for why um, second grade teachers need tenure, right? Tenure was created for protecting academic freedom <laughs> and all that. And uh, you really don't need second grade teachers to have that much academic freedom to the point where they are getting into stuff that would put them, um, you know, in jeopardy of being fired for it. Right. I mean, like odds are, if you're, if you're going so off curriculum as a second grade teacher to be fired, maybe you should be fired. And, um, it was really interesting how adamant the, the teachers that he would get into arguments with were about how they had the need for these, you know, these vital protections for their intellectual honesty and intellectual freedom as second grade teachers. But one of the things I learned back then um, was how the, um, you know, for all the, let me put it this way, for all the talk about voter suppression by conservatives and Republicans 
and look, there are some things that people point to that are worthy of criticism or further investigation. I think a lot of it is really overblown, but um, what gets scant to no attention is the way in which public sector unions, particularly in places like New York and Chicago and elsewhere, um, are basically in the business of keeping normal voters from voting, right? The primary system is so controlled by one party, they make the the election days for primaries, which determine who the winner is going to be, um, you know, on in the middle of August or wherever, you know, wherever they can be sure that the fewest people will show up. Getting ballot access is very, very hard. And there's some really good academic literature on this that just shows that a low turnout environment, teachers union and their allied groups basically can decide who wins an election for school board or supervisor and this kind of thing. Um, but if everybody turned out, they'd be swamped. And so in big cities, the enemy of, quote unquote, democracy and you know, where democracy is under assault, at least in major American cities that are, tend to be overwhelmingly blue, it's not coming from Jim Crow right wingers. It's coming from public sector unions that want to maintain their control over legislative outcomes. Oh, completely. You know, the, 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 the Chicago mayor's race, there are two people in the runoff. One of the people in the runoff, 95 95% of his funding came from the public teachers unions and the other public unions. I mean, literally, they are they are a party machine. They're not an interest group. They're a party machine. And I think it's worth pausing about what's the difference between them and other interest groups. Other interest groups give give some money, although not in the league of the <laughs> public unions. Um and they're after something. They want a subsidy or a sliver of some pie, you know, out of the public fisc. And it's a, you know, Washington is all about these people elbowing at the public trough and trying to get a sliver here or a sliver there. Public unions uniquely have the power of collective bargaining. So they have contractual power over government. Plus they spend, well, Terry Moe found in his book on teachers union, the teachers unions spent in um, 36 states, I think, outspent all business groups combined <laughs> in, you know, in, 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 in political uh, con- contributions, but they're not seeking a sliver of the public fist. They've gotten control of the entire operating machinery of government. You know, they, you can't, <laughs> day-to-day choices. You want to move the desk in a federal office? That has to be bargained. You know, you want to go talk to a teacher about the problems she has and keeping uh, uh, the student's attention? Sorry, you already talked to her 40 minutes that month. You're not allowed to go talk with her. I mean, it's this incredible control thing that you, you wonder why teachers want, you know, why why public employees want it. And I think it's... Uh, it's kind of the human weakness. It's uh, like Plato's cave. You know, you know, no one, the idea of accountability is scary to everybody, all of us, right? No one, quote, wants to be accountable, even though it creates a healthier workplace or environment. Um, and so, so we cling to it, even though it's fundamentally bad, bad for us and we don't leave the cave. And that's what they promise. And they deliver. They deliver. No accountability. 
And we'll take a quick break to hear from our sponsor today, Aura Frames. Looking for a really special gift for this Father's Day? Whether it's the group shot from the family reunion, the 20-pound bass he caught last summer, or his favorite photo of mom, an Aura digital frame is the best way to display dad's favorite memories. Obviously, every dad in my life already has one of these frames because I'm obsessed with them, as you guys kind of know. Today's picture in our kitchen is just from three months ago of husband of the pod holding the new baby on the couch, and it's really cute. And I make sure that our frame only switches pictures about once a day, but you can set it to switch every 30 seconds or once a week so that it's more like a real picture frame. When you give it to your dad, your husband, whatever dad in your life needs a frame. Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frames with preloaded photos and memories. Your father, your grandpa, your husband, Husband, or even your brother, let him see what a great dad he is with an Aura frame. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Father's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. This deal ends June 18th, so don't wait. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah, I mean, I think this is... It's a good point, and it's a blind spot I think a lot of people have where... You know, it's like this point I, I keep making about how education, we think about education wrong in this country. People don't get their kids educated to guarantee that they'll be rich. They get their kids educated to guarantee they won't be poor. And we, there are a lot of, there are a lot of workers who are willing to forego increased financial upside in exchange for a guarantee against any downside. And, you know, and so like you have these numbers in the book about the number of people, you know, like, as you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, the incredibly small number of people who get fired for anything there, it is, there's a quantifiable, I'm not an economist, but there's an amount of, there's a financial value one can put. It's like an insurance policy to the idea of, Sure, you're only going to make $150,000 a year for the rest of your life, but there's no chance that you will make less than that. That's valuable for a lot of people. That kind of confidence and security is very valuable. And it's the kind of thing that I think a lot of human beings are, who are risk averse and would rather protect the bird in the hand under all circumstances than go for the two in the bush. Um, it's a distorting effect on public policy that we don't, I don't think we just appreciate enough. Yeah, I agree with that. But I think it's also, you know, there are aspects of human nature that are not, um, that are not constructive, even for the people who are, who are making the choices. So that if, you know, if, if we were cavemen and somebody delivered us fast food every day so that we didn't have to, in water, we didn't have to go out and do anything. No one would leave the cave, or few people, because there's saber-toothed tigers out there <laughs> doing all kinds of terrible things. So, you know, it's true in big organizations. People are wired to try to avoid losing their jobs. So, in fact, the most liberating, certainly the most liberating thing that ever happened to me in my life was getting fired from a big firm, because what it made me realize, I mean, I was incredibly unhappy, but, but what it made me realize soon is that you shouldn't be scared of being fired. You can pick yourself up and do something else. And all of a sudden you can start going out on limbs, you know, and trying things, not being scared that if you somehow you can't pick yourself up. So 
it's it's just a bad part of human nature. And people have talked about the personality types that go into public service stuff. You know, and I think that's a little overblown too. I think most people, we have a daughter who's a teacher. You know, most people who are teachers love children and want to be effective teachers, you know, and 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 we should do all that we can to support them. But that's starting with, well, I think we need to compensate them fairly, but that's starting with creating a school system that allows them to use all of their muscles to change the lives of thousands of students. And we haven't done that. We stick them in lousy institutions. Okay, so I want to move on to the constitutional issues here, and I have a slightly weird way of getting into it. Um, I think you make a very persuasive case that a lot of this is, is, is constitutionally very suspect, if not just outrageous. But um, if we can define our terms a little bit, like, you know, Philip Hamburger wrote this wonderful book about, you know, is administrative law constitutional? Um, and is what you're talking about, I mean, how would you differentiate if, if you're, say you're talking to your average um, law professor <laughs> or angry Republican or a little one of both, uh, either are, is what you're talking about the administrative state. If not, what is the difference between public sector unions and the administrative state? Are you a believer in, in deep state theories? And, 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 and if so, which one, because there are some deep state theories I agree with and some I think are paranoid nonsense and it kind of depends on what people mean. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, this is a longer discussion. I actually, um, and, and Philip Hamburger and I have discussed this uh, a number of times. Uh, the growth of the bureaucratic state, the biggest problem with it is not the scope of government, but its, uh, pres- but its prescriptive nature. It's the fact that it leaves no one, not citizens and not officials, with the authority to make sense of daily choices. And so um, uh, the worker safety rules are, you know, 4,000 rules saying you've got to have a neat closet and industrial grade hammer and this, that, and the other. And all the studies say that if you really want safety, what's really required, most, what's most important is a culture of safety. It's training and incentives so that people act safely. And that's, pick a number, exponentially more important than, than the equipment. You do want suitable equipment for the circumstances. But, you know, all that requires judgment. You don't need an industrial grade hammer to Tack pictures on the wall, right? So, you, so, um, so we've created an industrial state that actually doesn't give officials the authority to make sense of regulation. Um, so, I think we need more goals-based regulation with checks and balances to guard against um, to guard against abuse. So that's a, it's a law, and I've written books about this. So. You know, my book, The Death of Common Sense, was about this and others. So, uh, but, but, but the difference, Philip Hamburg is complaining about delegation by the legislature of lawmaking powers to the administrative state. So it says, we want clean water and you write the rules and tell us what the rules are for how to have clean water. And then EPA writes rules on on how to have clean water, and they're really writing laws. And so Philip Hamburg is making a principled argument that, um, that no, the Congress ought to be more the, the body, you know, under our Constitution, who is, who is making 
making those laws, not delegating to to lifetime EPA employees. And so there's a point there. What I'm talking about with the unions is not delegation from one branch to another branch, but delegation by government to private parties, which is exponentially worse. And so if you give the power, let's say you, you, you get elected and some friend of yours said, hey, I'll give you $100,000 to, uh, to let me you know, run the subway however I want, <laughs> that would be unconstitutional because uh, governing is a sacred trust. You've been elected you've been elected to represent the people and you have to be accountable to the people for how you run government. Remind me, like, I think it'd be obviously illegal. What, what's the clause in the, I'm, I'm sure it exists, but what's the clause in the constitution that says you can't be. Okay. So, so there, there's a, the, 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 the non-delegation of sovereignty is, is reflected in a couple of places in the constitution, but the most directly is applicable to state and local government is something called the Guarantee Clause in Article 4, which states, the United States shall guarantee to every state in the Union a Republican form of government. Republican form of government is capitalized. And what that means, and Madison talked about it a lot, is that whatever democratic um, Structure a state comes up with, and different states have different, you know, variations on, on how they run themselves. The people who are elected to run the government have to retain the power to run the government so that they're accountable to voters. Remember, the Republican form of government is all about we elect somebody and they act on their best judgment on the behalf of the common good. That's what a republic is, right? So, so forming, so keeping a Republican form of government means you've got to keep your authority. And what Madison said is that means they can't give it or sell it to any group of aristocrats or nobles or, quote, any favored class. And what's happened in modern America since the 1960s is that the legislatures gave governing powers, a veto over government plus more, to the, to the unions. A private party, uh, and so that so that the people we elect to, who promise to fix the schools, <laughs> or you know run the subways more efficiently, don't actually have the authority to do that. The other day, um, the the MTA realized that post COVID work patterns were different, and so that people were a lot of people were working uh, Tuesday to Thursday, but not so much on Mondays and Fridays. So they wanted to reschedule the trains so that there were more trains in the midweek and fewer uh, at, at the end of the week. This would be better for uh, commuters because there'd be more service and would also save a little bit of money. The union vetoed it. The contract doesn't allow them to, to you know, reschedule people's time that way. They said, ah, it would be inconvenient. People are used to doing it the way we've been doing it. Well, who elected them? Yeah, um, I mean, so I, I find this sort of stuff, I, I find it fascinating because I, you know, in, my, in my last book, I, I kind of got into the, 
sort of evolutionary psychology about some of these things where there is almost a natural anthropomorphic tendency towards guilds and aristocracy, right? Where given the ability, the first thing people do is um, of a certain group or of a certain class um, is they start protecting their prerogatives. That's how you get aristocracy in the first place, right? Is essentially them saying, hey, you know, we actually have noble blood. And so therefore our rights and prerogatives are going to be heritable. And I remember reading about there's, there's a couple states in Mexico where teaching jobs are heritable. Like if you're a chemistry teacher, you get to leave your job to your kid, whether or not they are qualified um, to teach chemistry. And um, and this sort of tendency uh, you know, is one of the reasons why you know, the Catholic Church had all sorts of changes to the rules about about marriage and whatnot, and, and it's, it's in part where the celibacy stuff comes from is because nepotism was a um, product of, you know, the word, it means nephewism in a sense, and the Catholic, uh, all these Catholic priests and bishops were giving their quote-unquote nephews these plum positions. The Romans had problems with it. The, the Turks, they came up with the idea of, of, well, if you get eunuchs, or so do the Chinese, you know, if you have eunuchs, they won't have families to reward, so they'll be loyal to us. And that didn't work. That worked for a while, but then it gave out. That's right. The Janissaries took over. That's right. Because eventually you get they eventually Marx is kind of right about this thing is people realize their class consciousness, right? The Praetorians at one point just started auctioning off the job of Caesar to the highest bidder um, because they had the power. And and the, anyway, the re- reason I bring it up is because I'm I'm more and more persuaded by. Uh, you know, uh, Jonathan Rauch's demosclerosis argument, which is basically a popularization of, of Mansur Olson's stuff. And Olson's argument was that really the only way around this kind of buildup of, of sort of calcium on the body politic, on the joints of the body politic is war, because <laughs> then you get to start over when Japan and Germany are ravaged, all the old civil service protections go away. And they get to start fresh. That's a dark, dark vision <laughs> of how to get uh, reform. Well, but but yeah, but the political science in that is completely right. So change doesn't happen incrementally. Change happens by punctuated equilibrium. You know, everything good. Ceausescu remains emperor for, I mean, dictator for years after everybody hates him. And then finally, somebody shouts out down with a dictator in some forum. And the whole audience explodes with down with the dictator. And he's and he's gone, you know, in twenty minutes. So, so we're, you know, the last big change we had in our society was the nineteen sixties. It was the right to before that was the was the thirties with the depression being like a war. Uh, before that was the was the, was the uh, progressive era, and that took decades of agitation, you know, of people horrified by child labor. And, you know, and all sorts of, you know, uh, uh, you know, abusive practices by robber barons and such. Before that was the Civil War. Civil War was for the, the decades of, of uh, conflict over abolition and such, and finally ended up in the war, right? So, so we're in this situation where we have these legacy bureaucracies that have encased everything in amber. Washington is a giant 
engine of the status quo. All those interest groups are sitting there. You know, they say they won't change here and there. They really just want to keep things the way they are. Everybody's supporting themselves just fine with nothing much changing. So you get these marginal changes from president to president, and that's about it. And and nothing really. And now you've got a government that, you know, we need all these resources in order to deal with the challenges of our century, which include climate change, you know, incredible, not just income inequality, which I don't think is that important, but, but inability to people to support themselves, you know, because of the, because of the wage pressure of globalization, you have people working their ass off and they make $20,000 a year. So we need resources to deal with these issues. And we have a government which is half of the economy, more or less, which is organized to be to squander resources. The total cost of public employees in this country is over $2 trillion a year. How effective are we utilizing those people? Well, <laughs> not, you know. And, and then they're spending lots of money. How effectively are they spending it? So, so we're overdue for a... Oh, oh and by the way, in this system, this encased in amber system, uh, is one that profoundly alienates people because it doesn't let people act on their daily, you know, in daily choices in a way that they think makes sense. Including people in school, you know, the, the teacher in the classroom doesn't have authority to maintain order, the principal doesn't have authority to maintain school, the manager of a factory, you know, can't focus on what he knows is really the, the real issues for safety and efficiency. He's got to go through a multi thousand box checklist, you know, for hours that, you know, it makes no sense. So you have this profoundly alienating system because it disempowers human agency everywhere. And it squanders money. And we have all these challenges. And neither party, neither party is even close. Neither party even has the idea of having a vision. They argue over policy, you know, is climate change real? Should we, what should we do about immigration? Nobody talks about how to make things work. On the one hand, I, there's something... A little charming, a little sort of uh, encouraging, charming is maybe the wrong word, but encouraging that there's now this movement for what they're calling supply side progressivism. Um, you know, Ezra Klein wrote this piece for the New York Times that got a lot of attention that I thought was well-intentioned, but kind of ridiculous in the sense that, you know, asking why the construction sector has become less productive since the 1970s and with except for one sort of throat clearing throwaway you know uh, sentence fragment cannot contemplate the idea that government may be a big explanation government regulations may be a big explanation for why even though technology has gotten so much better the construction the construction center of, of, of Amer the american economy has become objectively less productive um and at the same time, you know, there, are this, there is this movement in part because of climate change to re-embrace nuclear power. Um, 
there's this idea that like government should be nimble again. But I am, I am very pessimistic or skeptical that the Democratic Party is remotely capable of looking the problem that you're describing in the eye because the Democratic Party is, is you know, we've been, we've been saying for a half century at least that the Democratic Party is the party of government. But there's a difference between being the party of government and being the party for government. And the Democratic Party, in many ways, if you look at how it spent the COVID money and all these kinds of things, it is really about rewarding members of its coalition who are in these public sector unions and affiliated groups more than it is actually about helping the people in those helping profession, that, that those helping professions are supposed to help, right? So it's, it's more about helping teachers than about helping students. <laughs> you know, um, I've had maybe three dozen reviews of this book, you know, and, and they've all more or less been, you know, extremely favorable. But with a couple of sections, exceptions and some people in the middle, I've gotten no comment from the left. Zero. I mean, it's not like they're criticizing it because I think they know it's correct. It's just gotten no comment. Joe Klein wrote a column recently on his new Substack about, about, about your point. He said government, the Democrats believe in more money for government. They don't actually believe in good government. You know, let's throw money at it but with with no coherent idea about how to make it how to make it deliver, and um, you know I'm hosting a forum. I have an appointment at Columbia in the economics department on 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 reempowering human agency in a few weeks with a couple of Nobel Prize winners. So the opportunity to just make sense of public services, not to get not to deregulate, just to make them work sensibly. And to give people some sense of agency, you know, in their daily lives, is—I mean—we're literally talking about probably trillions of dollars that are available if we could do that. But it's going to require disrupting the status quo. And as you point out, you know, all the interest groups are for preserving the status quo. Yeah, I mean, I remember—I've uh, talked about this a bunch of times on here, but. Um... MSNBC used to do these sort of mini agitprop kind of public service. This is who we are commercials where they would tout just how wonderful government is. And um, I remember Rachel Maddow did these ads in front of the Hoover Dam. Um, This was during the Obama administration talking about how, you know, we built this in three years or whatever, you know, we built the Hoover Dam remarkably quickly. I can't remember what the number was. And, um, Government can do great things. Government can do important things, yada, yada, yada. And I always used to laugh about the ad because if, if the federal government proposed doing you know, something like the Hoover Dam today, Rachel Maddow and all the progressives who love this idea of the government doing bold and ambitious things in principle would be the first to protest and say, look at it's a crime against nature and i actually think hydroelectric dams are terrible things but like you know uh they didn't get the proper forms they didn't do the proper environmental impact i mean they're they 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 the the headlines are always government can do wonderful things but the fine print is always um but let's do it really slowly and inefficiently yeah i mean let's go back i mean so if we want to build high-speed transmission lines from 
renewable sources in the Midwest to the cities. Uh, basically, no one can get a permit. I've been involved. I've been working with Congress on this. The only solution is to create a clear authority structure where there's preemption of state and local law. You know, you input with a timetable and authority to make decisions to give the permit to do that. Because there are so many laws, it is literally impossible to get a permit. If you want to house the homeless, recently LA announced that it had all these billions to, to help solve its homeless problem. Each unit costs $700,000. <laughs> Think about that. Each unit costs $700,000. I mean, <laughs> it's like a split-level house, right? The, um, uh, but that's because of building codes and such. So where did what's the solution? Talk to anybody smart about homelessness. The old SRO housing that we made illegal. So what's the current solution? New SRO housing that does not comply with all the building codes, that does not necessarily have a bathroom in every room even, but it's a room and it's a place for the, and guess what? You could, you could build seven units or probably more, 10 units for $700,000 and get those people off the streets. So um, law, the, the framework of law and legal approvals and such, it's, it's, you know, Jonathan Ross talked about it in Demosclerosis. I've talked about it in the Death of Common Sense and other books. You know, I, I wrote a book called the, De- called the Rule of Nobody, which was how we created a, a, a framework designed to avoid human choice. So we're so scared of humans making the wrong choice, you don't let them make the right choice, right? And law can't work that way. No law, not, even, not regulation, not even courts. People have to make choices. And... Um, and so we've created a system that has, at this point, we have, so we have 200 million words of binding federal law and regulation, probably about 2 billion words if you count all the state and local governments and such. So you have this Amazonian-sized legal jungle <laughs> that you're supposed to navigate that makes you spend $700,000 on a, on a shelter for the homeless, and that makes it more or less impossible to get a permit for a transmission line. So you have to clean that out if we want to fix problems. Also, I mean, just it's, it's a point worth emphasizing, which sort of screams out from a lot of the work that you've done, that the more complex you make society, the more you are subsidizing the in-groups with high levels of political, economic, cognitive capital to be able to manipulate the system, right? I mean, it's a, the, the, the more complex you make society, the more barriers to entry you create for people without special privileges, special access, special abilities to navigate them. And, you know, so I agree with you that income inequality is an overblown problem, but, um, at the same time, the sort of, the status inequality that comes from that fuels populism, which says, Oh, there are, you know, there are people who know get, how to get around the red tape, who know how to game the system. They know who to call. Um, they know how to get in the right schools. They know how to get, you know, the, the, the special benefits. Um, that creates a kind of uh, societal sort of us versus them envy 
that I think is really dangerous for democracies to have because it, it basically recreates the the resentments that you got with the old aristocracy without actually being honest about what the situation is. Uh, I I agree with all that. Uh, I think the worst problem is is Washington because Washington all these rules really prevent local ownership, right? And local responsibility where things can happen a little better. And the thing that struck me about Washington when I started working with Congress on reforms a couple of decades ago is how inexpensive it is to actually block anything. It's harder to get things but it's unbelievably inexpensive to block something. You can give, you can, you know, ten, twenty thousand dollars of contributions, and some favored congressman will use it as a chip in some negotiation for something, and it will get blocked. I mean, it's just incredibly cheap. So you've got this engine, and the founders kind of made this. I mean, they they made it so it would be hard to to make new laws, right? I mean, it was you know all these checks and balances make it hard for for government to move forward. What they didn't figure out or think about is how hard it would be to then undo laws after a few hundred years. You know, how do you, you know, so finally the sediment in the harbor gets thicker and thicker and it's time to clean things out. But the same process for making it hard to pass a law, make it impossible to get rid of a law because for the Mansur Olson point, there's now an interest group who wants that law. And they've got $20,000. They may have $20 million. Guess what? I mean, it's like an automatic veto. Because they're going to care a lot more about that one law than 300 million people are, right? The concentrated benefits, diffuse costs problem. Right, that's right. So there needs to be a kind of a, I, I mean, really the only solution other than war, I guess, is is a... Um, is a movement or third party or something that's that's centrist oriented, that's that's for rebooting the system, not to get rid of government, but to make it work. You know, just just let's just push the reset button. <laughs> you know, you know, what can we do with worker safety? What can we do with the schools? You know, what's the deal for teachers? What's the deal for cops? What's the, you know, that's we're just so overdue for that. No, there's an analog to sort of urban politics generally, which is, this is one of my great frustrations with the Re- Republican Party, and I have many frustrations with the Republican Party, but one of them is there's a massive constituency waiting for them in big cities if they can make peace with the fact that big cities want a level of government that doesn't fit a lot of Republican rhetoric, but they want it to work. They want it to, you know, to... To, to be effective and efficient and cost effective and, and all that. And like Rudy Giuliani before the fall kind of understood that argument. And, um, you know, and there's a role for Republicans, to, there's room for Republicans to seize that, but they're just so caught up in their own problems that they're refusing to even really look at it. Wait, look at the situation with the unions. I mean, you have the ripest piece of fruit available for the Republicans to pick because the Democrats will not be the party of good government because they're in the pocket of the unions. Like the guy in Chicago getting 95% of his money from the unions. So they can't say anything about it. 
Every, every Democratic leader I know would love for me to win this case in the Supreme Court because they can't manage government the way they want to, but they can't run on that. They can't actually do it because of the political clout of the union. So the Republicans could become the party of good government, not the party of more government, but the party of good government. We're going to go in, we're going to have a fair deal for teachers and cops, we're gonna, but we're going to make sure everything's manageable and the subways are run for the benefit of this of the commuters, not for the benefit of the workers, and et cetera. Oh, my God, how attractive would that be in New York City or Chicago or, you know, or anywhere else if somebody ran on that? I mean, the Republicans, it's like ready for them to pick. <laughs> Instead, they talk about all these kind of ideological abstract things, you know, when they could actually, you know, I think it's, I mean, I can't imagine voters except people, members of the unions, voting against them. So about, about getting the unit members of unions to vote against them, is there room? It's sort of like, you know, one of the things I always respected about Tommy Thompson when he first did welfare reform back in the, what was it, late 80s, early 90s, uh, is that he acknowledged that it was going to be more expensive up front to replace the existing sort of system of, of institutionalized dependency, um, but it was going to be better for the recipients, better for the people, and better for the budget in the long term, but it's going to take an investment up front to change the system. Is there, would the economics work on, let's say the, take the transit unions, right? To say, let's put it up on a, on a referendum. It'd be a two part deal on the one part across the board, 30% pay hike for transit workers on the downside, we're going to sunset Transit, the transit union, basically get rid of it or curtail its powers remarkably. Is, is, there, is there some sort of democratic bargain like that? I mean, I want to talk about what the Supreme, what you think can get done at the Supreme Court, but is there a political quid pro quo that you think could induce the, the union members out? Because like the, the, a lot of them voted for, you know, right to work stuff, um, you know, were on the side of Scott Walker in his fights in Wisconsin. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, no, yes, there's clearly a deal that would be, I think, better for most public workers. And, you know, you, I think one has to distinguish the types of jobs there are because the way government works is that people on the bottom are overpaid and professionals are underpaid. So you probably want to pay teachers more and cops you know, more. But in any event, um, but sure, you could pay people more and save you know, a third of the money if you could manage it. I mean, th that's another thing. No one's really ever given any thought to what's the cost of not being able to manage something. You know, there are 10 million books on how to manage things well. There's not one book on what happens if you can't manage an organization. It's like disconnecting the spokes from the hub. I mean, how do you, you, you can't move forward. You know, every little decision gets negotiated you know, day to day and public sector. It's just unbelievably inefficient. How inefficient? 50%, 70% more? Depends on the, but it's on that order. So sure, you can pay people 20, 20 or 30% more and save, you know, incredible amount of money. Yeah, no, I mean, like, I, I am a deep and abiding skeptic of the waste, fraud, and abuse argument from politicians, not because I don't think there's waste, fraud, and abuse, but I think the kind of waste, fraud, and abuse 
is legalized, right? It's, it's institutionalized. It's the stuff that you're talking about. It's not, you know, like, I mean, sure there are guys who are like, you know, patting their wallets and, and, and stealing money, but it's not the kind of thing that bends the spending curve on a $24 trillion economy. It's this institutionalized stuff that does. Right. And the, and the bureaucracy that is so scared of giving people responsibility that it will spend twice as much on a contract to um, build a new subway on Second Avenue, <laughs> or five times as much, uh, because the procurement rules are so defensive. You know, they don't let people actually make commercial contracts. So that's one of the first things that needs needs to get reformed. I mean, this country spends, I think, number seven, eight hundred billion dollars a year in in outsourced contracts, and and the rules for procurement guarantee that the that we get 50 cents on the dollar you know because we're so scared as you pointed of somebody being on the take that that we don't let people actually make commercial judgments all right so you mentioned the supreme court i mean if if you had your druthers obviously you would love there to be a sort of common sense uh, great awakening among legislatures and they would fix this by law and by with democratic <laughs> accountability. Right. But there are lots of things you hope for in life that are uh, not likely. Um, it, does this have a, is there a real fight to be had, had and won in the Supreme court? I mean, given the title of your book. Yeah. The, yeah that's why I wrote the book. Um, the, the initial reaction when I, when I published it, uh, was kind of silence and people were stunned. This got to be too good to be true. <laughs> How could these things be un- unconstitutional? And then lawyers started looking at it and I started getting these reviews from lawyers saying, you know, this is a serious argument. Um, and I point out some of the steps forward that the court would have to take in its jurisprudence to do these cases, but they're not that big. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, this is something that I think the, I think the only way we can ever get anywhere. Well, it's the general generalization in government that I learned when I was a civic leader in New York, you know, dealing with city hall. You can't ever actually talk them into doing something. You have to go down there with a sledgehammer and you say, if you don't do something, this is what we're going to do. This is what's going to be on the front page. So otherwise the fix is always in. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, uh, so I'm working with one public interest law firm in Chicago. We were already working on the first case. I'm looking for for uh, potential plaintiffs in New York and Connecticut. And I'm in California at the moment, in California. And um, so our idea is to uh, organize a bunch of lawsuits. The state's collective bargaining agreements are somewhat different from each other. So they're the lawsuits have to be somewhat different from each other, but the same basic argument is, is um, will you know will be common among the, all the cases. So that's 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 our intent. What what's the stand like? What what's your claim to standing in these cases? Uh, it would be uh, well starting at the top, an elected official who is not able to exercise his or her constitutional responsibility to manage government. Because of these contracts, so a mayor, a governor, uh, you know, elected town supervisor. Time frame, you think, for this kind of thing to actually reach the Supreme Court? We're talking five years, ten years? No, 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 no. Uh, two or three years. Yeah. 
Is there one that has been filed yet that, that, that we can pay attention to? No, because my book came out six weeks ago. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> well, get on it, man. You know, no one, <laughs> I mean, no one, no one had the idea before. So, um, you know, this is a new idea. People have complained a lot about different aspects of what unions do, but nobody's actually, you know, so leaned back and said, hey, wait a minute. Why did, how can they have these powers consistent with, with our, you know, system of constitutional governance? All right. Well, uh, obviously, I mean, I, I, this is one of these things where, you know, I, I try very hard to maintain the position that there are lots of things I want that are unconstitutional and there are lots of things that I think are very bad that are constitutional. So uh, this is one of the things where I would love to hear the counter arguments about the constitutional argument. But obviously, I'm on your side on this. And um, assuming, and it sounds to me like you're right, um, I wish this all the luck in the world because I, I just think it's, it is such a sort of suicidally stupid position that we've gotten ourselves into where, you know, there are all sorts of things. I'm a very conservative guy, but there are all sorts of things I think the government should do. Or just, you know, because we're going to have government. And if a government is going to do them, it should do them well and for a reasonable cost. And the idea that like that is a controversial position on the right or the left um, just shows you how dysfunctional the system has got because it is a dis it is a controversial position on one form or another on the right and the left these days. And that's kind of nuts. Yeah. And so I'm a good government guy. I never really thought of myself as a conservative. Um, but but I'm trained as an economist, and so I'm. I think about things, but you know, sort of how they work. But the, the virtue I, I I think of of this book is not only that we. I think we have a really good constitutional case, and the more you think about it, I think the better it is. And so I'm getting a lot of serious, favorable commentary from leading constitutional scholars on it. But even if I were to lose the case, or we were to lose the case. What public unions have done to the operating machinery and the operations of government is not just inefficient, it's a scandal. It's a scandal on the order of the jungle. These agreements are designed for inefficiency. They're designed to prevent government from doing what the public needs. It's, it's, it, it has to be considered a scandal, not just accepted because it's been there for 50 years. And, and that itself, I think, is, is a virtue of, of writing this and one of the reasons I'm so passionate about it. I just think it, it's, it's evil to take every, every public dollar involves a moral choice. You know, if, if you spend it here, it's not available for there. And to squander these public dollars and to squander these human resources in deliberately inefficient systems is immoral. And we're at a point in our society where our society needs to do a lot of things. And we can't do them in part because of this. All right, uh, Philip K. Howard, thank you so much for coming on The Remnant. And um, I hope to have you back as, as, as your project advances. Great. Great to be with you, Jonah. Okay, so Philip Howard has left the studio. Um, I know this is kind of like a, uh, um, this was kind of like a greatest hits 
um, episode and so far it covered so many things we've talked about on here before. Um, if you I highly recommend the book, um, the book again is called rethinking the constitutionality of public employee unions. Um, we also, he also wrote, uh, an excerpt. He also had an excerpt from the book in an issue of national review, uh, a couple issues back, um, which I highly recommend. It's a good sort of, um, outline of, of the history of this stuff and this constitutional argument. Um, and you know, again, we don't usually have people who are sort of, and I don't think, I don't think Howard is a activist in the sort of traditional sense, but you know, we usually don't have people who are sort of pushing a court case kind of movement kind of thing in here, but he's, you know, the death of common sense was a great book. And I think, I think, you know, I'll talk to, I'll talk to Sarah and David about the the constitutional argument anon, but I think sort of directionally, he's absolutely right. Just this idea that somehow um, elected officials should be um, the servants, not of the people, but of the the various state, local, and federal bureaucracies is insane. And um, you know, if you removed all of the protections, all the union protections um, that the federal workforce or the state, these state workforces have, um, with maybe some exceptions for cops and firemen and a few other things, even though I do think that the police unions have gotten too powerful. Um, but generally speaking, uh, it's not like the federal government or the state government or the, you know, Poughkeepsie government is going to turn um you know, the office of public health or the department of motor vehicles into sweatshops where they've got little kids, you know, chained to desks, filling out forms. Um, the, the potential for abuse I think is, is really quite low. And, um, in part because you can always quit your job. Um, and, uh, and also just the ability for, um, government workers to, have access to government officials is so much greater than, you know, a factory worker, um, at a car plant or whatever, um, that I think most of the parades of horribles that people bring up about how, you know, public sector unions protect against some terrible outcome are just basically, you know, BS. Again, I am sure there are exceptions to the rule. Um, but I think there are very, very, very few and far between. Um, and, we really just do need some sort of rethinking reorganization of how we do government in, in this country. I think conservatives could give up on some of the libertarian rhetoric at the margins, um, in exchange for, uh, actually having tax dollars be spent efficiently. Um, so we can do the things that we actually all, you know, agree government should do. Anyway, uh, sorry if I'm distracted. Uh, today is my birthday. It's very excited. You know, um, the, the, the party is raging upstairs and um, I got to get back to it. So with that, I want to thank everybody for listening. Obviously, uh, um, we have more exciting podcasts coming. If you could become a member of the Dispatch, that would be super terrific. Awesome. And um, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.